Professor Balford and the Team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance in the program. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the podcast as he does every week. Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note. The Boston Red Sox have recorded no fewer than two or three trades. We'll say no fewer than two trades and maybe even three trades over the course of the last week. Most notably for Arizona Diamondbacks reliever Brad Ziegler and Milwaukee Brewers third baseman Aaron Hill. Team president Dave Dombrowski has a history of playing fast and loose with prospects when trading for help for the present. Are these most recent transactions exemplary of that or not is the other possibility. Cameron has begun his trade value series this week. How, I ask Cameron, how does he handle those sorts of players whose recent performance deviates wildly and their established records. For example, Jake Lamb, who apparently is currently leading the National League in slugging percentage, and Julio Tehran, who, for whatever his virtues in the past, is managing contact now better than ever. Finally, the omission of Clayton Kershaw from the top 50 list received some attention by way of social media platform Twitter.com on Monday. Cameron says Kershaw was never really a consideration for the list. I, I'm actually fairly surprised that Kershaw is the guy who's like generating this much blowback uh, because I mean you know like I talked to a decent amount of people in the game and ask a lot of people who do this for a living like hey you know uh, what do you think of the list and got a bunch of feedback and no one mentioned Clayton Kershaw's name once one additional note the practical analytics section this week treaded dangerously into the waters of real talk real talk if you come to this program and to baseball in general to avoid such matters, consider skipping ahead right now by roughly 13 minutes. I would say go ahead roughly 13 minutes from this point, maybe to the 15 or 16 minute mark. Something along those lines. To which comment, I would only like to add a sponsor's message. The sponsor is SeatGeek, SeatGeek.com. Have you ever been frustrated by life? Very possibly. Life is a horror show. And in most ways, SeatGeek cannot be of assistance. However, if you are currently in the market for sports or concert tickets, then listen on, friend. What SeatGeek does is to pull tickets from all available sites into one place, to aggregate them as it were, and what they do is to assess every ticket a value grade so that you, the consumer, are able to exploit the inefficiencies in the ticket buying market. What I suppose you could say is best of all, what SeatGeek does is to show you the full ticket price from the beginning to the end of the transaction, unlike StubHub, for example, they had no mysterious fees or hidden costs. And for having endured all of this, Fangraph's audio listeners are entitled to a $20 rebate. Here's how to claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code Fangraphs, that's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code Fangraphs today or at your nearest possible convenience. With which the introduction is almost concluded. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now. It's okay. I didn't just spend six or eight minutes sitting here. Twiddling my thumbs. Did you not? No. You got other. You got other things going on. Yeah, I had other things to twiddle. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> I don't want to. Know. I don't know if I want to know any more about that. <laughs> That's not what I meant. But way to way to make it gross. Yeah. Let's uh. Listen. There are uh, 
they're the public, capital P public, Dave Cameron, they're unhappy about your comments regarding Clayton Kershaw. Uh, okay. Tell me what they're unhappy about. Well, I'm not going to, we're not going to talk about it right now. We're going to get to something because <laughs> I don't, I don't like to get involved in the fray and the scrum, you know, I like yeah. to steer clear of it. Yeah. But I will bring it up later in a more sober moment. I'm not prepared to do it at the moment. Okay. So you just uh, teased uh, a later a later fight. Yeah, that's te- I've teased it. Um, I want to ask you, when do I uh, get to a more pressing question in that concerns? Practical analytics, Dave Cameron. All right. Practical analytics represents the portion of this program in which we attempt to deal with, we attempt to apply the same sorts of uh, strategies we do to the analysis of baseball to real life to make this podcast worth a damn. Uh, I think we're failing, but okay. We're failing, yeah. yeah. This one concerns uh, the all of the horror in the world. That's what it concerns. And uh, you know how there's a lot of horror in the world? Yeah, last week was terrible. So, yeah, last week, let's start with the last week. There was uh, two black men shot by police officers and then uh, police officers themselves gunned down and uh, lots of carnage and lo- um, and just um, unpleasantness for everyone is what yeah. really what it was. Mm-hmm. unpleasantness and uh i don't know uh i don't pretend to know at all what the sort of ripple effects of this are i think that time has a way of um obscuring everything right so uh, one year 25 years 100 years thousand years i don't know how long memories like this last uh, and that may not even be the point <clears throat> uh, but here one thing that did remind me today is that uh terrifying things have been happening for a long time my wife is reading a book by an author named Luc Sant about Paris um, during the uh, – it's called The Other Paris, and uh, it's maybe Paris in the 18th and 19th centuries. That could be right, maybe even the beginning of the 20th century. <clears throat> For many years, Paris was one of the, the most disgusting <laughs> places in the world. Um, I think she was citing me the a point, for example, maybe this is early 20th century. There was like a two-month pe- uh, period when over 20,000 people in the city of Paris, which was a smaller city then, died of cholera, perhaps. Sure, that's the thing that kills people. Yeah, and she also brought to my attention uh, a, a, a really amazing passage of a river that doesn't no longer exists, but it was a river that went through the city called the Brieve, I believe, a river called the Brieve. I could be wrong about that. And there were some descriptions. For like a 100 years, um, it... <clears throat> Yeah, there are descriptions that are like a hundred years apart, but they are roughly the same. Of this body of water that would pass upon which people were they were living right on it essentially, and uh, it was it was not water in any way that you would recognize water. It was like a sort of black. It was black and foul and viscous. And uh, there's there's an anecdote in which two people watch a uh, a child fall into it. And then no one uh, even attempts to <clears throat> save the child. One probably because the child is just a poor, poor person, and also because anyone else who would go in the water would die immediately as well. Um, so it, this is another form of uh, one of the horrors that's existed in the world. And uh, so for the purposes of practical analytics, this uh, sometimes this is a light moment. Sometimes this is uh, something more substantive. This could be a combination of both. Is I guess how what is it what is one individual is there anything for example in the field of economics uh, or in any of the other fields that can teach us how we can alleviate the most horror with the least amount of effort? Is there any do we have any path to do that? Man, so you're 
Your practical analytics question this week is how do I save the world? Well, no, no. And see, that's so. Let's start there. What are my What are my odds as a single individual saving the world? Yeah, not very good. Not very good. Okay, no, so, not so very we, good, yeah. we've established that this is not possible. Very likely. <laughs> right. Although, who's that uh, young woman? Perhaps she's from Pakistan. M- Mali- oh yeah. Um, Mali- I know. Yeah. Mali- uh, uh, she has a difficult name to, to it's pronounce. A, it's very embarrassing that I don't know. But I yeah. know it begins. Way to with bring a, her up so that we can uh, draw yeah. her ignorance. She's the best. She's, she's the best. Be- Malala. Uh, my, my name is. My name is. Malala Yousafzai. Okay, thank you. Yes. Yeah. I actually fine. didn't look that up. I remembered that. Okay. Well, very good. Yes, yeah. I am Malala. Is also the book she wrote. Anyway, I've certainly seen interviews with her, and she appears to be the best case. She's like the best case scenario, I think, because she's not even twenty. Yes, right. And she's already, yeah. uh, and she appears to have so much more courage, and happens to exist in a context where that courage really matters. So, uh, that's maybe that's the best case scenario for a human. But as an idiot. As a moron, moron idiot sitting in my home, uh, where where am I going to get the? What is the what is the best I can do for the, with the least amount of effort? Well, I don't know that there's anything in economics that answers this question, or really in any kind of analytical realm that I know of. I mean, to me, this is almost like a, a philosophical question more than an analytical question. Is like what what can we do when the world is horrible and there's nothing that we can practically do to stop people from being horrible to each other mm-hmm. is to be as not horrible as possible, right? So we can we can be as loving and accepting and uh, courageous and um, stand up against horribleness when we see it yeah. and speak out against it when it happens and stand with those who are treated terribly. Um, I think probably the worst thing we could do is just retreat and say, there's nothing we can do, so we're going to do nothing. So this because is the is, – is, uh, is this from the Hippocratic Oath? Uh, is part of it first do no harm? Yeah. Is that so? Would you say that doing no harm is at least a good beginning? Yeah, but it's not enough, right? Okay. So yeah. I feel like you know we're both um, uh, white guys, yeah. and uh, we probably don't suffer the same kind of horrors that a lot of minority groups do, and we, our lives just aren't as difficult as uh, other people's, and we're not in constant danger of being shot by the police, yeah. uh, or you know many of the other awful things that happen to humans in the U.S. and around the world. So I think if we just sat around and said, well, we're not shooting people mm-hmm. and we're not, you know, uh, causing, actively causing harm to oppressed groups or minority groups or those who, you know, don't have the access to things that we have, that's not, that's not enough, right? Mm-hmm. All we're, yeah. Like we need to do more than not cause harm. We need to figure out a way to do something positive to contribute to society. It, now, okay, so – so in terms of you, – you said that there's not necessarily – that you regard it more as a philosophical than an economic question. There must be some – there must be some sort of strain of thought within the field of economics or some of the behavioral sciences where there – where people have a – something like a consensus viewpoint on not necessarily those conditions which create happiness, although I certainly have seen attempts at that, but at least certain material conditions which – uh, protect people from from horror, which would be essentially, no, you know, starting with, I mean, basic things, shelter and food, right. and then uh, probably some form of education, and then also no like no threat to their bodies, their you know no no sort of co- constant threat to their bodies. Has there been any attempt to, to the best you know uh, to come up with a consensus viewpoint on like what conditions we regard as humane, essentially? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, so I would, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't say that there's been like a consensus on what like a basic standard of living should be. I will say economists have, uh, have done some work on kind of rearranging the, the discourse away from like just pure financial gain into what is often called utility. So that's like often the goal of, of economists is to create the most utility and utility is kind of a way to stand in and say, look, we say we have a million dollars and we can either give the million dollars to the guy who already has a hundred million or we can give it to the guy who has nothing. Uh, we think that the world will get more utility out of giving it to the guy who has nothing because he can buy things that are more necessary to the human life than the guy who already has $100 billion who's just going to, you know, uh, buy a nicer boat or a seventh boat or something. So instead of just saying, okay, all money should be dispersed in a, you know, the kind of the same uh, capitalistic way, if you assign utility to it, you can uh, kind of rearrange the the value of wealth. And I think this is one of the the primary arguments for the universal basic income, which we I think oh, we talked right. about yeah, previously on the podcast, is like if you can kind of redistribute the uh, um, the direction of where some of the wealth in the world goes, you can get to a higher level of utility by making sure that the the wealth that exists uh, is going to provide the most amount of shelter and food and the basic necessities of life instead of just providing for greater and greater riches for those at the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, yeah, I guess that was a concern. So it doesn't, it doesn't in terms of, uh, well, again, bringing this back to a question of practical ethics, uh, what do you think of, what do you think is essentially the smallest act one can perform to alleviate the terrible i mean i think from our perspective we need to be as neighborly as possible to those who are not always treated as neighbors right so like this might be difficult for you in maine because as far as i know there aren't any black people in maine uh, <laughs> so it might be difficult for you to go find one and and you know sympathize with them and be yeah. friends with them but maybe you know take a road trip down south <laughs> and uh, leave your white enclave and just go I, find someone i would like to announce I'm not purposely ended up here <laughs> to to avoid uh, to avoid diversity. Uh, I yeah, was, it I, I was out that way. Yeah. I, well, maybe it has. Although I will say, and uh, this is a thought that I've had recently, is I I would think that in certain areas, um, in certain areas, for example, so far as uh, in racial ones specifically, um, that a lot of what caused, for example, um, migration of African Americans. To certain urban centers, in particular, was jobs which required, which were exploitative to some degree. Right. Is that yeah, fair? Yeah, I, I think you've talked about this before, where you you enjoy the the lack of racial uh, <laughs> exploitation in Maine's history. Yes, so, that's right. Well, so we, this is how you justify living in the whitest place on <laughs> earth. It's actually it, more than the whitest. What uh, the other thing it really is is actually the old, statistically the oldest. The oldest place on Earth is where the world began. The oldest state, the oldest state in the country uh, by uh, like median age. Oh, you mean the oldest population? Oldest population, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Old and white is a a good combination. Uh, Oh yeah, I have not again not purposely (laughs) linking people diversity. I would just like to. I will say, to be fair to you, I'm moving to Oregon. Yeah, that's true. You know, not not also. uh, Above criticism. All right. Well, I don't know if that got exactly where I was going, but sometimes you. Aim for the sky and hit the ceiling, Dave Cameron. Yeah, I'm not even sure we reached the ceiling. <clears throat> uh, Be nice to your fellow man. Let I me ask you. Let me ask you. Uh, 
Well, let's remain in New England. Let me ask you, the the Boston Red Sox, baseball team Boston Red Sox, have made no fewer than two trades over the past week. One to acquire, I think, surprising uh, Aaron Hill, who is having a surprisingly strong season. Sure. Uh, from the Brewers, and then also to acquire Brad Ziegler. Uh, I guess, what, the next day, maybe, or the day after? A couple days later, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, I, this is interesting, I suppose, this time of period, because uh, the Red Sox have, I think I checked right before the weekend, they had roughly a 40% chance of winning division, something slightly above that, of making the divisional series, of course, by way of the wild card. Uh, I assume that acquiring Hill and Ziegler helps them to some degree in that. I don't know precisely what the numbers are. That's not the exact point either. Uh, the notable thing about the Red Sox this year, of course, is that they are headed by Dave Dombrowski, as opposed to what the most recent years was Ben Charrington before him. Uh, who was it right before? Was it was it uh, Theo Epstein right before yep. Ben Charrington? Yes. Okay, right. And uh, those, I think, those uh, two general managers uh, were regarded as, at least uh, popularly by idiots like me, as probably uh, being. Uh, among the more progressive um, in baseball front offices, and also probably am, among the least likely to trade, not not the least likely, but and they were certainly if they thought they were getting a piece, but they would be unlikely to trade players of note, prospects of note for a bullpen arm or you know essentially what, what amounts to a backup third baseman or something like this, right? A utility infielder. Uh, Dave Dombrowski, uh, I think, well, of course, uh, led the Detroit Tigers through. Uh, a number of very successful years, none that won, a, none that resulted in a World Series, but left them at the top of the AL Central uh, with some frequency. Has had uh, almost the exact opposite uh, sort of uh, manner of means of, of operating. The, the the Detroit Tigers farm system is frequently regarded as among the weakest, but this is not to say that they've done a poor job drafting. It's just that most players of talent whom they have drafted have ended up on other teams uh, by way of trade. So what I would like to ask you is what uh, what do these trades – How are these sort of like uh, what we consider uh, typical trades? I think what we saw was Brad Ziegler acquired for Jose Almonte and Luis Alejandro um, Basabe. I'm going to say Basabe. I don't know. I apologize. And then Wendell Riho and Aaron Wilkerson traded for Aaron Aaron Hill. Uh, French Five fixture Aaron Hill or um, um, Aaron Wilkerson. Uh, is this sort of uh, um, customary Dave Dombrowski stuff at work here? Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, you didn't bring in Dave Dombrowski to rebuild, right? Like you already traded an arm and a leg for Craig Kimbrell. Uh, they they signed David Price to a long-term deal because they wanted to win in the short term. They've got David Ortiz essentially in the last year of his career, assuming he doesn't change his mind and come back again for next season. Um, so you, at this point, you're you're not pot committed because you do have a good young talent, but you're there's no reason to not continue to try to win uh, when you've already kind of pushed in so far on trying to win this year, and you've got some pretty glaring holes. So, I mean, did Dombrowski pay a little bit more uh, to get in, you know, a little bit of a jump on the trade deadline? Sure, uh, that's what Dave Dombrowski does. And, like, uh, if he had waited a couple of weeks, it's not entirely clear that uh, Ziggler would still be available. Perhaps some other team was uh, knocking on Arizona's door, and, and there was a time crunch, and, and Boston had to decide whether they were going to take the risk of not getting Ziggler now, 
um, and potentially losing out and getting a, a worse reliever at the trade deadline uh, or be scouring the waiver wire in August for some kind of bullpen help. I think they knew with Kimbrell injured, uh, as he went on the disabled list, I think right after they traded for Ziggler, that they probably weren't in a position to wait around. And so if you buy early, you pay a little bit more of a premium. Um, and so I, I'm not surprised that Dave Dombrowski is, uh, you know, paying a, maybe a little bit more than we'd expect for a reliever. Uh, but at the same time, you know, bullpen costs on the whole went way up over the winter, and it's not necessarily um, too early to say that, you know, maybe this is just the new price of relief pitchers, right? When we see what Ken Giles cost and we see um, what what free agent relievers got uh, and we see what the Yankees are asking for Andrew Miller, uh, it's not surprising that the, the price on even a good, not great reliever like Ziggler is perhaps higher than we've seen in the past. Well, uh, what are the Yankees asking for Andrew Miller these days? Well, if you believe the reports, they just basically are saying he's not available. They uh, apparently wanted Kyle Schwarber from the Cubs, and it's not even clear that they would do it in a one-for-one. They're basically telling teams that they're just going to hang on to Miller in a probably in an attempt to extract uh, some kind of offer of some team hoping to just blow them away and say, look, we know you don't want to trade him, but we'll give up so much that you don't really have a choice. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if they ended up reversing course and trading Miller but they're also kind of hanging around the wild card race and don't really want to punt yet and since they have him under contract for two more years. There's no real need for them to trade Miller. And they also have it, – it, uh, were the Yankees to qualify the, the postseason, they have almost the perfect setup for that, right. isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, if they get to the wild card game and they could throw, like, say, Tanaka for five innings and then Batanzas, Chapman, and Miller for the final four, uh, good luck. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that uh, – that, attempt, that acquiring a player earlier in this sort of trade window here as, as we lead up to the non-waiver trade deadline at the end of July, um, a, a player, in partic- maybe a, in particular reliever, might cost more because you have, as a GM, you have more options. Is, is that basically the same concept as we see at the beginning of the free agency season where we find a lot of uh, teams maybe overpaying on a dollar-per-war basis because – uh, they're sort of going out and identifying a specific person as opposed to just kind of waiting for the players to fall to them, essentially? Yeah, I mean, I think early, the earlier you buy, the more you pay. So mm-hmm. when the sellers have options, when when it's either a team trading away a player or a free agent selling their, their kind of long-term contract, when they can say, okay, look, if you don't offer me this contract, I can wait for someone else to come around and, and they'll offer me that contract – they, that seller has leverage, and so you have to overcome that leverage by providing them the kind of uh, offer it takes in order to give up the unknown future that might result in even better offers. You're essentially saying, I'm buying out your right to get an even better offer down the line. When a player or a team has already kind of waded through all the offers and is now kind of up against it and has to make a decision, they know that there's not a better offer coming this is the best offer they're going to have. You can uh, kind of remove some of that leverage and say, look, your options are either not trade the guy or take what you have on the table. Um, so if you're the last buyer at the table, you can get a better price. Right. And um, but you you're just, often you're often buying like a somewhat more defective good because all the good stuff's already been bought. Will you will you provide a, a quick? We we discussed uh, well, of course the two players who have been traded. I think Michael Martinez was also traded also to the Red Sox. Um, but a, a smaller deal that uh, you mentioned Andrew Miller. Um, is there anyone else who's uh, who's imminent? Is there anyone else who's about to be traded? I mean, not that we know. The okay. All Star break teams usually don't make moves during the All Star break. The commissioner's office uh, 
prefers that the attention not be taken off the All-Star game itself. So we're kind of in a a four-day lull. You might see a trade on Thursday or something coming out of the All-Star break, but we're probably going to take a few days off from transactions. Okay. Um, Oh, yeah. I saw a report today. It was was Carlos Gonzalez of the uh, Colorado Rockies expressly denying that he had interest in being traded. And I was thinking about this in relation to uh, soccer, for example, world soccer, where if a, if, a, if a player has a good season with a team that is not among those teams that uh, routinely makes it to the Champions League, for example, mm-hmm. it's almost inevitable that that player will be, uh, will be sold to one of the bigger clubs. Um, and, but I've been thinking that it, even though the, his contract uh, you know, is years from being up, it, it seems as though that's much less the case in baseball. You don't really find a lot of players demanding to be moved at all. And I suppose maybe the easy answer is parity, but perhaps there's something else going on. And maybe it's a it's tradition in baseball not to complain through the media. Uh, is there, uh, I mean, do you sort of have a sense of the history of players demanding to be traded in baseball or, or why they don't? I mean, it does happen. I think uh, maybe the most famous example in the last, I don't know, 20 years would be Ken Griffey Jr. basically uh, forcing his way out of Seattle uh, back in 1998, 99, somewhere in there. Um, ended up in Cincinnati, uh, and he basically dictated where he was going to go. He had like, almost total uh, control over the situation, eventually ended up saying he would only play for the Reds. He would only negotiate an extension with the Reds, so the Mariners traded him to the Reds. So he essentially uh, chose his own destination, even though he wasn't yet a free agent. Wait, and the uh, Mariners still got Mike Cameron out of it, though. The, the Mariners won that deal by a landslide, because Mike Cameron <laughs> was really good for them, and Ken Griffey Jr. was not nearly as good in Cincinnati, uh, mostly because of injuries. But Cameron was a highly underrated player. Uh, yeah, he so actually... Wait, I, I know that I've said this before. So that, that 2000... So, okay... Uh, in that, in that, so the trade was done. What the off season ninety nine two thousand, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Ken Griffey Jr. was coming was a twenty nine year old coming off of a five win season. Yeah. In ninety nine, Cameron, if you could believe it, had actually recorded, and a lot of this, of course, is uh, from defensive value, and maybe uh, maybe Griffey's defense was was already slipping by then, which is not uncommon uh, for a player in their thirties. But Cameron was only twenty six. He had just been worth. Uh, slightly more than five wins, at least according to Fangraphs War. Right, which wasn't available in 1999. Not available, record. no. But uh, he had he had put up quite a strong season. Yeah, I mean, I think nowadays you wouldn't see that kind of trade happen. Like this would be the equivalent of say like Andrew McCutcheon, uh, if he only had one year left on his deal instead of two, uh, demanding a trade and then somehow convincing uh, the Pirates to send him only to where. Uh, you know, Boston, say, like McCutcheon really wanted to play for Boston, and the Red Sox were like, well, we'll give you Jackie Bradley Jr. and a whole bunch of other stuff, where nowadays I think we can look at it and be like, well, Jackie Bradley Jr. by himself is probably more valuable than Andrew McCutcheon. Even if he's not as good a player, he's got more control left at cheaper years, and he's younger, and he's going to have a longer career ahead of him than, than McCutcheon will. Right, and we don't know. Uh, well, he's certainly having a, he's having a better year than Andrew McCutcheon, I think, yeah? Right, yeah. 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 Well, good. Uh, I guess good for the uh, good for the mayors in that point. But so less of that in the meantime, though, right? I mean, that, the, yeah. I mean, so it doesn't happen nearly as frequently. My guess would be it's largely due to the parity in baseball, where if you're on a bad team in baseball, unless you're like on the Phillies or Braves or something, mm-hmm. you can probably talk yourself into the idea that you might win in the next couple of years. And even the Braves continue to talk like they're going to try and win next year, even if that's silly. Uh, I think in baseball, it's much easier to sell the idea of a quick turnaround where. 
in basketball, what, you have teams that win like 10% of their games and they just go to the, they go to play every day knowing they're going to lose every single night for the 76ers, what, lost like 30 games in a row this season or something? Like, uh, their players were just marching out there every night knowing they were going to get beat. They don't have any chance of winning anytime soon. And so if you're a, you know, a good player on a team like that, that is a much less balanced league, you might say, look, what, what am I doing here? Why am I wasting my career on this team that has no chance to win? But if you're on the Rockies or the Royals or one of these kind of mid-market teams, you look at it and be like, look, the Rockies made the World Series five years ago. The Royals just won the World Series. The A's have made it to the playoffs a bunch of times. The Rays made it the World Series. Like, it's not that difficult for a baseball team to have a bunch of stuff go right and to make a deep run into the playoffs. And so if you're comfortable and you like your teammates, you like your coaching staff, you own a house, and you think that, you know, your circumstances could change relatively quickly, it's probably not as important for you to demand a trade somewhere else where you don't actually know that you're definitely going to be in a much better um, position to win just through the vagaries of baseball. Do you think that also there's there's something about the consequences of losing that that make the team more likely to trade or to, to sell a player in soccer? Because if you finish in last place in, you know, the English Premier League, for example, you have to go down to, to you know, to the what I guess it used to be called the first division, now the championship, um, and that's you're losing out on a lot of money. So if you sell, if you're a team that's kind of near that basement during the off season, you trade, uh, you know, you sell your best player, and you can take that money, you can invest it in like five mostly competent players who are like who are more likely to give you uh, a chance of staying up the next year and continue to make that Premier League money. Whereas in baseball, if you finish in last place, you get the you get the first pick in the draft, and you also right. get more in the way of international signing bonuses or something right. like this. Yeah. There's a socialist structure in, in the American sports that doesn't exist in the capitalist European sports, uh, which is uh, interesting given the uh, political differences between the two places. I know it is right because baseball or sport in general tends to be a uh, a venue. For our for fantasy to play out, mm-hmm. right? So uh, for for Americans, the the fantasy is a socialist one. For Europeans, it's a it's a it's a terrifying nihilist capitalist one. Yeah. Where if you if you're not among the best in the league, you have to go down. In theory, you could just continue to to decline until you're basically right. an amateur. Although then you have like what the Leicester City story, which is like the the greatest upset in sports history, maybe or something. So like through the nihilist capitalist society, we also get like this really neat story of Leicester City, which you never get in any other sport. So that's so the payoff is greater in that case, right? Right. The, the, but, but then all the other teams like Leicester City who will never win are paying for the 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 improbability of it because they have to lose in order for it to be so improbable. Right. Well, so at that point, I guess you're talking from a fan's perspective. And maybe from the clubs, but it's a it's a psychic investment at that point, right? Where if you have been a Leicester City fan before this year, and uh, you've you know you've invested emotional health essentially yeah. into your into the club, the payoff this year was was gigantic. Yeah, I listened to a Freakonomics podcast with uh, it was about the Leicester City comeback, and they interviewed a Leicester City fan who, for basically every year of his life, has wagered on the Leicester City to win the championship of whatever league they've been in, whether it's the Premier League or when they got relegated down to other leagues. Every year, he just goes to the 
book and lab uh, books or book whatever. And, yeah. 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 And then goes and gambles on Leicester city cause it's his favorite team and he wants to have some like currency invested in as well as his fandom. Uh, and so he's been doing this and losing money for years. And then this year he moved to America and he forgot. Oh no. Yeah. So it would have paid him, I think he said like a hundred million pounds or something, which I don't know exactly what that is in American dollars, but it's a, sounds like a lot. And, uh, because they, you know, there were 5,000 to 100 dogs, and he usually put down like, what, 100 pounds or something, so, uh, 200 pounds, whatever it was. He, he normally made like a substantial enough wager that he would have gotten a lot of money for his team pulling off the, the greatest upset in sports history, and he, he forgot to do it. Yeah, though, for him though, if there is, if, uh, a bit of a silver lining, it's that the, uh, the pound is worth less today. Uh, yeah. than it has been the, since the Brexit like, was really good for him. <laughs> yeah, since like 1970 <laughs> right. or something. Yeah. So, so there is a bit of a silver lining, not a huge one. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the trade value series. Okay, let's do that. Let's do that. I want to ask you first about some players that appeared in the list today. These are uh, you were doing uh, 41 through 50 today, mm-hmm. um, and you had a, a few players here, and I, and I know that in each case, I think you. Uh, some of them you you examine this concept more or less closely, uh, but it, attempting to balance the um, the value added the uh, of of a of a great first half for a player and it, in attempting to assess what that means and f- for his overall value. This was a case with Jake Lamb. And it, honestly, I hadn't been. I guess I had not been keeping up with Jake Lamb. And wait, you hadn't been paying attention to Major League Baseball? I'm shocked. No, I didn't. Well, I didn't realize that Jake Lamb was having the the sort of season he was. Yeah. Um. And uh. But of course, I was I was editing August's piece from this morning, and I wonder. I actually would take a peek behind the curtain, allow listeners to do so as well. Did you ask August to write that piece so that you could link back to it when you were quoting when you were citing Jake Lamb? So I did not. I did not uh, instruct August to write the piece. I wouldn't be surprised if we asked him if he also noticed that Jake Lamb was having a monster year when I was soliciting feedback from the staff on the trade value list last week, and maybe oh, yeah. he saw that Jake Lamb was on the list and was like, Jake Lamb's on the trade value list. I wonder why that's happening, and then looked and was like, yeah, Jake Lamb, monster power hitter, leading the National League in slugging percentage. That's the thing I should write about. Yeah, well, and of course, I had seen his name uh, mentioned around, maybe, and I figured, what I guess what I assumed was... Um, he was doing something maybe a little bit similar to what it, he did during his call-up last year, which was uh, maybe you know he had a, a, an elevated uh, batting average and balls in play and was getting a bunch of value from fielding. Right, you know? which is not at all what he's doing. Which is not at all what he's doing. I mean, he still has a high a BABIP, uh, mostly, but his power on contact is, is bananas. Crazy. Yeah. I think he's – so there's an argument to be made that what he's doing is what J.D. Martinez did a couple of years ago or Jose Bautista did a few years before that. Those are uh, certainly names cited by August Fagers from Right. Piece, it's man. like there's been a notable difference in his swing, a notable difference in his approach. Like this is not necessarily the Jake Lamb we've seen him previously. And I think actually when I was uh, looking at Jake Lamb's player page, I noticed that August Fagerstrom wrote a piece this spring about – players who, based on their spring training performance, you might expect a big leap forward from. And Jake Lamb was the first guy he talked about because Jake Lamb was showing a ton of new power in spring training. And uh, and spring training stats often are misleading, but sometimes can reveal some truths. And so it's not just in the regular season. Lamb was doing this in March, too, uh, and was identified even back then as a guy who might be on the verge of a power breakout. So at this point, I think, you know, we don't, certainly only have three months of this kind of, uh, you know, performance to lean on. 
but it wouldn't shock me if Jake Lamb was kind of the new J.D. Martinez and was going to keep doing this, uh, you know, above and beyond what the projections are expecting. Right. And I should uh, I think it's good to note August Hagerstrom cited someone's work in that there was a, it was a piece from the, Dan Rosenheck. Dan Rosenheck, right. And I, I know that m- more than one of our writers has cited Rosenheck's research on what is and what is not valuable in terms of spring training data. Right. And yeah. power seems to be one of the things that is hard to fake. Right. And I think it was, uh, right. It was, I guess it's re- fairly intuitive, but he did the work to, to show uh, it. To, to show it, right. I mean, if you're not striking out as much and maybe walking a little bit more and, or you're hitting for markedly more power, those right. are the, good signs. Even uh, against weak competition, even in terrible, you know, uh, small complex, uh, right. ballparks and against minor league pitching, like, uh, if you're just crushing home runs like Jake Lamb did in March, it might mean something. Right. And then Jake Lamb is spent April through June through showing that it meant something. And another reason to think that the change in Jake Lamb is real, and uh, this is, you know, sometimes we write pieces, especially, you know, like through a half of the season, and, uh, you know, sometimes the conclusion just has to be, well, this is different than before, but we don't know if it will continue. Right, that's the conclusion sometimes, right. yep. and it's not uh, particularly compelling, but it's also the most responsible conclusion. Yep. Uh, if you look at Fagerstrom's piece about Jake Lamb, he has a GIF where he shows bat, um, um, Jake Lamb's batted balls, maybe in the air from last yep. year versus mm-hmm. this year. Last right. year it was center left field. Right. Did you see these these dark, you know, like orange spots? Yeah. This year he's abandoned that. There's like nothing there, and it's all like right field, right down the line. Yep. Yeah, and that's this sort of. Uh, that's, that's how you hit for power. This is what Daniel Murphy's doing. This is what uh, Matt Carpenter's doing. I think like it's becoming a trend in baseball where hitting coaches are abandoning this idea of like spray the ball around the field and just being like, no, sell out for power. Power is good. And so, how did you? Uh, well, it should be noted that the caveats you provide. For they provide for Jake Lamb, Lamb, and also Julio Tehran, who we'll get to in a moment. They are, they have a lot to do with Jock Peterson and his place on the trade value series last year. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. We look at Peterson ranked 12th last year, ranks 43rd this year. That's a big fall. I mean, we expect players to fall uh, just in general because they chew through their cheapest, most valuable years. Uh, but 12 to 43 is a is a bit of a steep fall. Uh, but Peterson, I think, last year at this time was kind of doing what Lamb did. He had a 137 WRC plus at the All Star break. Uh, when just dominated the home run derby and hit a bunch of bombs, and everyone got really excited about Jock Peterson's power. And then for the next year, Jock Peterson is at like 19 home runs in like 150 games. Like his power has basically disappeared. And when you have these like high swing and miss guys who rely on their power, they don't hit for power, that makes them not that good. And so I think we can look at like Mark Trumbo, right? Throughout his career, Mark Trumbo's had a lot of power, but he hasn't been a very good player. This year, Mark Trumbo's taken his power up another notch and has made himself an all-star. And so like you have these guys who are kind of like one-trick ponies. When that trick is going really well, they can be really super valuable. And when it's not, the floor is pretty low. And so uh, Peterson and Lamb um, and, uh, you know, kind of these uh, Trevor Story, who's also on the list, they have, you know, pretty high ceilings for when they're hitting for power and and a lot of risk because if the power dries up or teams, uh, you know, figure out how to pitch to them, there's not a lot left if they stop hitting home runs. Right. Although in, probably, in, of course, you bring up Story. He's also on this uh, this list of 41 through 50 Story has the the bonus right of of uh, playing shortstop, which allows right. him to gives him a larger margin for error. Yeah, Peterson plays center field, which also helps him, which is why those guys rank ahead of Lamb because as a third baseman, 
even a good third baseman, uh, there's a little bit more bat required, and, and it's not entirely sure that Lamb would be a you know super valuable player if he went back to hitting uh, like he did previously. Is the range in terms of uh, like the UZR range? Is it higher for center fielders usually than third baseman? You mean like the spread? Yeah, right. Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't actually know. I feel like I, I think you have like you know when Manny Machado was playing third base, he was putting up some pretty ridiculous numbers at third base, yeah. or you know in UZR. But I guess maybe in center field. I mean, what it seemed like Kevin Pillar and Kevin Kiermeyer throw up some crazy numbers out there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean the spread might be larger in the outfield. I'm, yeah, I'm not okay. actually certain. I like to. Look at, I like to. I think Jeff Zimmerman's done work on that before. It might be something to, to check out. The uh, oh boy. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's bring up. Let's bring up Clayton Kershaw. Okay. Um, you write about Clayton Kershaw in the honorable mentions. He has his own category. Yeah. Um, and you say that he does not appear among the top 50. Right. Uh, well, here, I'm going to say what I, what I remember, and then you correct me. He does not appear among the top 50 because even though he is, uh, I think, pretty clearly the best pitcher in the majors, he has a poison pill in his contract. I think that's right. a good term for it. Where if he is traded, he has the right to become a free agent – the following off season. Correct. So if he's traded in season, you're getting him for half a year. If he's traded at the beginning of the season, you're getting him for one full season. Right. And um, it, whereas the Dodgers, by definition, they have him till the end of his contract, which is what seven more years or something. Yeah, but he has an opt out even in that deal, so he can opt out of his contract after the 2018 season. Okay. Um, so the Dodgers have him for mm-hmm. two and a half more years, but that's still way more than any other team would have him for. <laughs> so now part of this is if you just if you just uh, Imagine this version of Kershaw as a half-season rental, right? Yeah. What do we have? Currently injured half-season rental. Currently injured, right? Right. And so, and so, so first of all, this trade series is a snapshot as best you can take. Uh, what at the beginning of July in 2016? Right. Yes. Right. Um, and presumably, if you were to maintain this list, it would you'd be moving people around on a weekly basis or something. Yeah, right. Players trade. I mean, it's not going to change dramatically in a week unless there's an injury, but like Noah Syndergaard uh, would have appeared much higher on the list if we had published this list before he left this last start with arm soreness. Like right. guys' trade value goes up and down as they play. Right. Now, <clears throat> tell me about recent trades for rental pitchers. I think you cite at one, you cite at one point the trade for David Price – yeah, in response to one of the people who thinks that Kershaw not appearing on the list is ridiculous. Right, and uh, well, well, that was uh, Norris Boyd and another and Ju, yeah, some guy Jairo Labour. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm sure, which yeah. I'm sure is a flawless pronunciation. I'm sure that's exactly how he says it. He goes and, up to people who I'm Jairo Labour. So this, so your, so your contention, I mean, implicitly, really, is that. You you should you could look at this trade value list. You look at who's number fifty, and I think that's Carlos Martinez. Is that right? Yep. Correct. And you would say that uh, right now, um, if the Cardinals were to be offered Daniel Norris, Matt Boyd, and Jairo Labor last year uh, for Carlos Martinez, they would they would likely say no. They would definitely say no. They would definitely say no. And so that I mean that's essentially that's the that's that's the argu- that's your argument against it, I assume. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I, I'm actually fairly surprised that Kershaw is the guy who's, like, generating this much blowback. Uh, because, I mean, you know, like, I talk to a decent amount of people in the game and ask a lot of people who do this for a living, like, hey, you know, uh, what do you think of the list? And got a bunch of feedback. 
and no one mentioned Clayton Kershaw's name once. I included him in the honorable mention as like a sign of respect for the best pitcher in baseball and an explanation for why there are some really great players who aren't going to show up on the list. It doesn't mean they're not great players. But Clayton Kershaw wasn't close to making this list, and he shouldn't be close to making this list because Clayton Kershaw is not anywhere near one of the most 50, 50 most valuable trade chips in baseball right now. Uh, and I think if you ask Major League General Managers how they would handle this, um, the answer is that it's pretty clear that teams do not pay for rentals with these kinds of talents. Like, you look at the guys who got traded for Price or Cueto. Oh, yeah, uh, what was Cueto? Could you just, yeah, I, that, that would help, I think, is to, to think Qu- about Cueto some... got Cody Reed and Brandon Finnegan, um, uh, neither of whom were considered top 100 prospects at the time. Reed has kind of elevated his stock since, but even still is not considered one of the very best pitching prospects in baseball. Finnegan looks like he's probably a reliever. Uh, there was a third guy in that deal who wasn't wasn't considered to be uh, at that level. Uh, but oh, was this that is John kinda, Lamb? Did John Lamb come in that deal? Oh, yeah, too? John Lamb was in yeah. that deal, right? The yeah. John Lamb's seen as kind of like a back end starter, a low upside guy. Um, and we can even look at like David Price the year before, right? David Price has been traded now two years in a row. Uh, David Price when he had a year and a half of value left. Uh, so you know the the when the Tigers acquired him from the Rays, they gave up Drew Smiley and Willie Adamas, and uh, I think a third player in that deal as well. Drew Smiley again was seen as kind of like a low upside back end starter, um, and Willie Adamas was an A ball A ball prospect who you know had some upside and has turned himself into one, maybe one of the top fifty prospects in baseball. A year and a half later, or a year later, or however long it's been since Price was traded to the Tigers, uh, maybe two years later, I guess. Uh, but, you know, certainly not these kinds of, you know, high-end, top five, top ten prospects. Uh, there's just no real history going back anytime since baseball teams have figured out how to value young players that teams give up these guys for for rentals. And so with all due respect to Clayton Kershaw, who's a fantastic player and one of the most valuable players in the game on the field, uh, teams are not going to give up three or four or five years of a controllable asset making no money for the right to pay Kershaw $17 million for 100 innings. They're just not going to do it. Whereas what would, uh, like if Carlos, I mean this is a very much an open-ended question, but what would Carlos Martinez fetch in a trade at this point? Or what do you, you know, what would uh, some of the other players we discussed here, Jake Lamb or? or yeah, uh, I mean, so I think like for comparison, right, Shelby Miller, a vastly inferior pitcher to David Price, <laughs> got Three times as much in return. Uh, Do you have Shelby any non, non-Diamondbacks examples? Well, I mean, so like certainly <laughs> the, the Diamondbacks dramatically overpaid, right? But I think even in that, the, our argument at the time was that was a silly trade for the Diamondbacks to make because they gave up, you know, far more than they should have. But the idea of them trading like Dansby Swanson for Shelby Miller straight up, or Andrew NCRT and Aaron Blair for Shelby Miller, wouldn't have been considered insane. It was that they gave up, you know, kind of both sets of value. And I think when Jeff Sullivan wrote the piece, it was like, look, this is the kind of price you pay for an ace. And I think like our trade reaction or our reaction to that trade was like, this is what you give up for multiple years of Jose Fernandez, not multiple years of Shelby Miller. Uh, but this is kind of the the what the market told the Diamondbacks that they had to pay. And, you know, I don't think they were correct in making that decision, but I don't think there's any question that the recent history of controllable young assets, uh, you know, when when the Braves are asking for an even better package for Julio Tehran, uh, when, the you know, we see what the A's have been asking for for Sonny Gray, like these kinds of players who command three, four years of value and make low salaries. Jeff Samardzic a couple of years ago, a year and a half of value, but only making $7 million, got Addison Russell. So I think that there's um, 
it's been pretty clear if you actually look at the trades that have happened that teams take salary and team control years into account very heavily when deciding what to give up. Uh, last thing is, uh, I was, I, I'm not very good at doing it myself, but I am always curious about what, um, what the, what this might look like from the player's perspective, right? The trade value series is, you know, it certainly looks at the players and the contracts, um, to which they're attached. It looks at them as assets. Mm-hmm. And that's because that's how teams uh, look at them. Um, uh, what would what would a player's version of this look like, if if that even makes sense? I mean, are you asking like if a player made this list, or if the players were like ranking? Uh, what would like be, the teams this, they would want to go to? Yeah, based maybe it's on... the teams they want to go to. Like the I, well, would you just sort by likelihood of winning the World Series, or would there be something else? Oh, I mean, there'd be other factors in there, right? So, like, uh, I think a lot of people have preferences in terms of, um, you know, where they want to have spring training. And so some people really prefer Arizona. Some people really prefer Florida. Some people prefer to be, you know, close, if they're from, let's say, uh, Puerto Rico, maybe they want to be uh, somewhere on the East Coast that has direct flights to Puerto Rico instead of on the West Coast where it takes a long time to get home. Um, so there would be other, uh, you know, factors in deciding where they'd want to go. But the m- main factor would be who's going to pay me the most. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, that would be good to know. Who's going to pay me That's the most? Usually the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Red Sox or you know one of those teams. Now, wait, is it a problem for in terms of thinking of uh, possible trade chips? Is it a problem, for, uh, or is it a factor in the in the case of Clayton Kershaw that he plays for the Dodgers, and therefore that's not a team to whom he could be traded? Sure. Yeah. So uh, if you're looking at the list of teams that could acquire a, you know, a short-term asset of making $33 million a year, there's not a lot of them and he's already on one of them. Uh, so it's not that, you know, uh, uh, Kershaw doesn't have value. He certainly does. And I think, you know, every contender in baseball would figure out how to squeeze his salary into their budget if they could get Clayton Kershaw. Um, but you'd have uh, a diminished bidding war compared to if you could open it up to all the teams who, you know, could go to their owners and say, look, this isn't just a rental. We're not just punting the future for, for one run at the postseason. Uh, we're, we're going to make a run at three, you know, three, four years, like the Diamondbacks kind of sold to their ownership and said, look, we can afford to trade Swanson and Blair and NCRT because we're opening up the window while we have Paul Goldschmidt for the next several seasons. I think if you can make that case to ownership, you can much more easily talk them out of a, you know, the high end kind of talents that appear on this list. Yeah. It didn't, uh, it doesn't appear to have worked out for the Diamondbacks quite yet. No, yeah. I think, uh, you know, when you look at kind of the history of trades pushing in on uh, veteran players, uh, teams have learned from them and, are, and they're less likely to make those kinds of trades, which is why this list is going to be predominantly young players. Right, yeah. All right, uh, you've fulfilled your obligation, Dave Cameron. All right. Yeah, well, thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Uh, what I'll say now is, uh, I have well, I have to say thank you. I'll say uh, that has been Managing Editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.